Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you've got a Bible, uh, I encourage you to turn there. If you don't, most of what we'll talk about be on the screen today. Um, it's good to be with you. It's good to be here on Easter Sunday. And if it's okay with you on Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right? Now here's the thing. All right? We're going to talk today about the most preposterous and dangerous and important statement in the history of the world. The most preposterous and dangerous and important statement in the history of the world. You see, shortly after Jesus rose from the grave and his followers began to accumulate and began to spread throughout the world, it became dangerous to become a follower of Jesus Christ, that they were literally being hunted down, they were being persecuted, they were being killed for their faith. And so they couldn't just walk out into the middle of the street and yell, Jesus is here, Jesus is alive, or we believe in Jesus. And so they came up with these coded ways to be able to tell whether people were followers. One of those was that they, um, you've seen the famous uh, ichthus that's on the back of cars is where most people see it today. But the fish symbol, and they would draw in the sand with a stick half of the fish symbol. And if the person on the other end was also a follower of Jesus, they would draw the other half and connect it. And they would know that they were a part of this group. Another way is they would just simply say to one another, he is risen. And if the person responded by, he is risen indeed, they knew. But that statement, at its face value, is preposterous. Right? Like unbelievable. Like crazy. Because see, to say he is risen means that he, human being, someone, person that walked the earth, was dead, buried in a grave, and then got up out of the grave alive. Now we, as many of us live in this part of the world, many of us have grown up with the story of Jesus, we know that. It's not a big deal for us to even think about that. But if you heard that from anybody else, you would think it was crazy. I don't mean to be insensitive, but if you went to a funeral on Thursday... Saw the person in a casket, went to the place where they buried them, saw it lowered into the ground, dirt put on top of it, and three days later you're at Starbucks and that dude walks in, you're going to be a little upset. Right? And if you call your friends and say, you're not going to believe who I just saw getting a mocha latte, they're going to, what are they going to say to you? You're nuts. It's not, it's got to be somebody else, Right? I mean, it's preposterous. It's also dangerous. Do you realize that more people have been killed in the history of the world for believing that statement than any other claim? To this day, it's still happening. Last Sunday, churches in Egypt gathered together for Palm Sunday and someone planted a bomb in their midst. All because they believe the statement, Christ is risen. He is risen. It's the most preposterous thing to actually believe a human being got up out of the grave. But it's also the most dangerous thing to believe in our world, even to this day. If you look at statistics for last year, more Christians were killed for their faith than any other truth claim on the planet. And it's not even close. Now, we don't feel that. But that doesn't make it less true. But it's also the most important Statement in the history of the world. He 
is risen. Because here's the truth. If he's not, it changes everything. And if he is, it changes everything. Now, there was a guy that knew this, knew the importance of the statement, and he's writing to a group of people that he wants to realize the importance of this statement. He's reminding them of how important it is. This guy named Paul. Paul was not always a follower of Jesus. He became a follower of Jesus. In fact, for a while, Paul was the number one guy getting Christians out of the world, arresting them, killing them, having them executed. Paul was the number one guy they sent on the mission to get rid of the Christians. And he's writing to a church after he's become a follower of Jesus. And this church is messed up. Now, I know you think you may have seen some messed up churches in your life. And you may have. You may have been a part of one. Your life may have been wrecked by a messed up church. But let me tell you, it would be hard to compete with how messed up the church in Corinth was. They argued over who was best by who baptized them and who was the better teacher and who taught the best and who was the best. They had groups of people that gathered around and they were like, well, I like this preacher best. I don't like that one best. And that was the mildest thing they did. They used to have the Lord's Supper and they obviously in Corinth weren't Baptists because they served the real stuff. Y'all know what I mean by that? The leaded version of the juice, all right? And so people, what would happen is they would come and the wealthiest of them that didn't have to work would gather together on the day they were going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And this is the time frame where people didn't get weekends off. They didn't get special days off. And so they'd have to wait till others got off of work. Well, while they were waiting, they would sit around and take the Lord's Supper so much that they would get drunk and eat it all. People would come in after work, those that had to day labor, those that were less fortunate, and they would get there like, all right, we're here for the Lord's Supper. I'm like, I'm sorry, it's gone. Divisions. There was a guy in the church that was living with his stepmother. And, and I don't mean was just borrowing a room at her house. And was proud of it. And wanted to stay in some sort of position of notoriety in the church. That's a messed up church. And after Paul spends lots of time saying, quit that, stop that, don't do that. Get back to this. In chapter 15, he says, I want to remind you of what it's all about. And he gets one of the most brilliant synopsis, one of the most brilliant, simple statements about what Christianity is. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. He says, now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in me, we're going to hold it there for a second, because what I want you to see, he's saying, listen, I want to be clear. I want to make sure you understand what we're talking about. All this other stuff, all these issues we've had, all these questions you have, those are important, but they're not the most important. And I want to make sure, at the centrality of who we are, that we get clear on what we're really talking about. And here's what I'll tell you. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a great reminder what he's about to say about what it really is all about. If you're here today, and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're here because family called you to be here, or because it's Easter and you're supposed to be here, or somebody told you to eat ham at lunch, you got to come to church first. I know those tactics, all right? 
And you're like, well, what's all this Christianity stuff about anyways? And I've heard all this stuff and you believe all this stuff and all, all the negative things about the church and history and the way they treat people and the hypocrites, you know, at work and all that stuff. Paul says all that, all that stuff boils down to this and get the noise out and listen to this. This is it. The centrality, the center, the major part of what Christianity is all about. Next verse. For I passed on to you as most important, most important what I received. Here it is. You ready? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then knowing how preposterous that sounds to someone that didn't experience it, he's going to give them some evidence to the resurrection. And here's the reason. It wasn't hard for them to believe somewhere in a church it wasn't a part of what was happening there. I mean, Corinth was away from Jerusalem. It wasn't hard for them to believe that a man had been crucified. They saw that. They were part of the Roman Empire. They had seen crucifixions happen on the road. That was not hard to believe. It was not hard to believe that someone that spoke out against the religious establishment and the government would somehow be crucified on a cross. That wasn't hard to believe. But he's saying, if you're having trouble believing in the resurrection, let me remind you of what happened. So he says he raised from the dead on the third day, according to scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas that's Peter he's saying Peter was one of the first ones to see him and then to the twelve the other ones that were there that were gathered around he goes on to say this then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time most of them are still alive what he's basically saying is if you want to check this out go talk to them but some have fallen asleep he appeared to James now who was James his brother I've said this before, but if you want proof of the deity and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, answer this question. How hard would your brother have to work to convince you he's God? Right? Some of, some of you going to get that about one o'clock this afternoon. That'll be all right. All right. Andrew York, it'd take a lot, wouldn't it? Yeah, I got you. All right. I just, he was nodding a lot, Ben. I just had to say that. All right. His brother, James, then to all the apostles... And last of all, as to one born out of the wrong time, he appeared to me. Paul's saying, listen, if you want proof, there are 500 people. Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. You can talk to Peter. You can talk to his brother. You can talk to me. We saw him. He's alive. The reason Paul was so adamant on proving the resurrection is because it is the most important statement in the history of the world. It's truth determines everything. Now, growing up, you were taught all kinds of truths, some of which did not matter much at all. Anybody have, ever have one of those uh, math teachers that tried to convince you everything you were doing in math you were going to use in real life? Anybody have one of those? Okay. Eli, Eli, not too long ago, brought home a homework assignment on negative exponents. I know some of your brains just got hurt just hearing that word, all right? And he asked me, he said, Dad, have you ever used this in life? And I said, yeah, uh, right now when I'm telling you how to do this and I'm having to teach myself again. That's the last time I used this was in high school, all right? There's some truths you learn that don't really matter. Sorry, math teachers, all right? But whether Jesus came back from the dead, that matters. And here's the reason, all right? Because if he didn't, he's just another guy. 
If Jesus did not come back from the dead, if he is not risen, he is just another guy. Because you know what guys do, even leaders, even kings, even prophets, even poets, even those that seem to be larger than life. You know what they do? They die and they stay in the tomb. King Tut's got a tomb. He died in 1323 B.C. Isn't that amazing that we know where his tomb is and he died a long time ago. He's buried in the Valley of the Kings at Luxor. Now that's not the one in Vegas, that's in Egypt, alright? I love how many people actually laugh at that, shows where our minds are, good to know, alright. Died, mummified, put in there, and you can visit King Tut, who's still in the grave. Xerxes I has a tomb. He said he was the most powerful man alive, and he was probably right. He died in 465 B.C. He's buried in this structure over in Iran. You can see it's a huge structure by the size of the people that are there. And there are actually four kings buried there, all four of which you can find in the Bible. Although some people wondered if they existed like they do in the Bible. They do. They're there. Darius I, Artaxerxes I, Darius II, and Xerxes I are all buried in that. Because men die and stay in the tomb. If you want to get more bang for your buck, you go somewhere like Westminster Abbey. There are all kinds of kings buried there. Edward the first, third, fifth, and sixth. Henry the third, fifth, and sixth. Richard the second, Mary the first, second, Queen of Scots. Elizabeth the first, Charles the second. Poets, artists, and kings upon kings upon kings are there. Because kings die and stay in the tomb. Napoleon was a great conqueror. But you can go to France to Les Invalides and find his tomb. And you can see where he's buried. Because even great conquerors die and stay in the tomb. There's a man named Herod. That when Jesus was born, got threatened by the fact that he heard a king had been born. And Herod was a guy that was very high on his own importance. He built this, the Herodium, for him to be buried in. And when he died, shortly after he gave the command for all the baby boys to be killed in that area, he died and they buried him there. And they recently found his sarcophagus and they put it on display in Jerusalem. And you can go see where Herod lies. Because even evil rulers die and stay in the tomb. There were two Caesars that ruled during the time of Jesus. When he was born, there was Caesar Augustus, who ruled from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. And Caesar Augustus was the one that decree went out that all the world should be taxed. He didn't realize at that moment he was used by God to fulfill the prophecy of Jesus being born. But when he died, they buried him in Rome, in this tomb that is named after him. It's the Augustus tomb there in Rome. 
And the man that came after him that ruled from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D., so he ruled during Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection, is Caesar Tiberius. And Caesar Tiberius is also buried in this tomb with Augustus beside him in Rome. And so you can go to one spot, buy a plane ticket, fly to Rome, drive to this spot, and see the place where the two men who were the rulers of the world at the time that Jesus was born, and that Jesus lived, and that Jesus died, they are buried. Buried and still inside of there. Because even Caesars die and stay in the tomb. And here's the thing. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he's just an ordinary man. And for you and for me, that is bad news. Because it means that death is inevitable. I'm going to tell you something that's going to happen in your life and it's going to shock you right now. You are going to die. It may not happen tomorrow. It may be 30 years. It may be 50 years. It may be 70 years. Or it could be this afternoon that it comes knocking at your door. But the percentage of people on this earth who die is about one out of one. Right? What's the old saying? The only certainties in life are what? Death and taxes, right? Doesn't it great when Easter falls on tax weekend? Gives you extra time to worry about it and get it off, right? Here's the thing. People have cheated on their taxes. I'm not asking if you have. That's between you and the government, you and your Lord. But people have cheated on their taxes or refused to pay them. You know what people have not cheated on? People talk about, I cheated death. Only for a little while. Because it's coming. For all of us. And not only is death inevitable, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then purpose is elusive. What's the reason for living? You get up, you eat, you go to work, just to make enough money to eat, take care of your family, you go to bed at night, you go to sleep, you wake up, and you do it all over again. And can I tell you something? I mean, we all have this idea that we want to have, be part of a great thing. We want to have great purpose, great ideas in our lives. Can I just tell you something? That, like, I know the big, big, one of the big things now is finding out your ancestry. I don't know if any of y'all have done that where you've looked back at your ancestry or even do the DNA testing now to see what percentage you are, where you're from, and all that kind of stuff. Can I tell you something? I, I, and I'm speaking for all of us in this room, okay? And this is the great majority of us, if not all of us. If... Eight generations from now, someone discovers that you're in their genealogy. No one's going to be real excited about that. You ever thought about it that way? Nobody's going to go like, man, wow, Larson was my ancestor. Awesome. They're going to be like, oh, okay. Right? Like, who do people get excited about? Famous people, right? Kings, queens, celebrities. Like, oh, we're all connected. But when they look back and see Lyle, they're going to go, who? And here's the truth. When you die, when you die, the next generation after you will tell stories about you. And possibly the generation after that. But by three generations, your name is not on their lips. And if Christ is not raised, then what's the point? You're like, man, you are really bringing us up on Easter. Appreciate it, Pastor. Now, here's the last one. If Christ is not raised, then hope is fleeting. Man, I could get depressed. Watching the news every night. I could get depressed looking in the mirror every day. Because it ain't what it used to be. Alright. 
I retire from softball every year. And there is some sort of conspiracy thing that happens around this church for the first game of the year every year when about eight people decide they can't show up and the last person on the emergency list is me. And about 10 o'clock on Monday morning of the first game, Jeff will say to me or text me, we need you tonight. Which means they are completely desperate and they've exhausted all avenues. So last Monday night, I found myself playing softball. And I could not walk for three days down a flight of steps. First time up, I uh, actually got a hit. I was pretty proud of myself. Right over the shortstop's head. It's pretty good. Got to first base. And then had to run all the way around the bases. Now, not at one time. It was three different times. So from first to second, second to third, third to home. I scored, got back to the dugout, sat down, and my quads go, we ain't doing that again. <laughs> not happening. So you know what I did the rest of the game? When I got on base, which I walked. He must have got scared by that hit. I didn't see another pitch the rest of the game. Pinch runner every time. Like, I'm not doing it, all right? Man, if this is all there is... And every day is a reminder that the body is failing and that the world is diminishing. And if he is not risen, there's no hope. But isn't that a good picture? He's just an ordinary guy. It's inevitable to have death. Purpose is elusive. And hope is fleeting. It's not just me that says this. This won't be on the screen. You can just listen or you can follow along. Chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? Verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, this is what Paul says, then what we're doing is in vain. There's no hope. There's no purpose. Not only our proclamation, but our faith. Moreover, we're a bunch of liars. We have been found to be false witnesses because we've testified wrongly about God that he has raised up Christ. So he said, not only are we hopeless, not only are we without purpose, we are people who are lying about God. And I can't think of anything worse to lie about. For if the dead are not raised, verse 16, not even Christ. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, your life, your meaning is worthless. And you are still in your sins. No forgiveness, no hope. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they perish. So those people that have gone on, that have been buried, that are not your, that are your relatives or your friends that have passed away, if Christ is not raised, they're gone. And if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be, and then he uses a word that means pitied, looked down upon, felt sorry for, More than anyone. It's the most important statement in the history of the world. He is risen. If it's not true, it changes everything. But, (laughs) Scripture always has these glorious statements of but. Verse 20. But as it is is Christ has been raised from the dead. And if it is true, if Christ has been raised from the dead, if 
He is risen is true, then the glorious reality is our life is not futile. There's hope, there's purpose, there's reason for living. I don't know about you, but if my life was just filled with the day-to-day stuff that I do, with no kind of connection to a larger purpose, then I can't imagine doing that with any kind of excitement. But because Jesus is raised from the dead, God not only wants to save me from my sins, He wants to put me into the greatest plan that has ever been devised to save the world. And I get to be on the front lines as a soldier, as a messenger, as somebody that is working for God Almighty in the plan He has established for His people and for the world. It's like being selected for the greatest mission that's ever been accomplished. Or tried or devised. Because it is. You know what happens when you begin to see the task that you do on a daily basis as a part of the grand design of God's plan is that stuff that wouldn't matter takes on significance in your life. I have four kids. Do you realize how much of our time is in a vehicle shuttling kids from one place to another? Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord from the parents here? Right? Friday night. Um, at, our, at my house, because we have four kids and because we're shuttling people all over the place and because of commitments outside of there, when we get a day off, um, that becomes catch-up day, like at our house. Like yard work, housework, cleaning work, errands have to be run, stuff has to be done. And Friday was that kind of day, as was yesterday, just all day long doing stuff. And Friday night, um, everybody, we, we were uh, kind of, everything kind of settled down. And everybody had gone to bed except for Luke, Susan, and myself. And Susan was in our room doing some stuff. And so Luke and I were in the living room together. We have an Apple TV. We were playing um, Crossy Road on there. Some of you know Crossy Road. If you don't know Crossy Road, just imagine Frogger with... Different characters, all right? And so, playing that and just not anything significant happening, playing it for a time, taking turns. And then I look at the clock and I say, man, hey, it's time to go to bed. we got a long day tomorrow. Um, Head on to bed. And he says, okay, Dad. And then he looks at me and says, Dad, I'm ready. I said, ready? Ready for what? He says, I'm ready to be baptized. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. And so, in the next few moments, he came up, sat next to me on the couch. We prayed together. We talked together. And in that moment, I was able to witness, be a part of, see my son give his life to Jesus. Now, here's the cool. That's really awesome. Yeah. We're going to baptize him in two weeks, which is going to be a special day for me because um, you only have four kids. And so it's kind of hard to do this. But this is the only time in my life I'm going to baptize two of my children on the same day because Maddie has also made a profession and is ready. And so we are going to have two. And so if you, by the way, if you're there and you've got kids or you yourself want to talk about baptism, we're going to do it in two weeks. We'd love to have you be a part of that. You can get in contact with me. Talk to Ellie, our children's director, Jeff, our youth director, Janetta downstairs, any of our staff and say, hey, I'd like to talk about that. All right. But here's the thing. As I sat there on that couch, the Lord just, you know how sometimes those of you that follow the Lord, you know how sometimes God just kind of lifts the veil for a moment and lets you see some things? And for whatever reason, you know what came into my mind as I was having that conversation with Luke? Was not just that conversation, but the hundreds I'd had with him over the last three years, riding in a car to tennis, going to run an errand at Toys R Us, 
with music that's on the radio that is speaking about Jesus Christ and who he is, singing in there, answering questions, asking questions. And all those moments where God was able to redeem the mundane part of my life because it led to a moment when my son accepted him as a savior. Because he is risen, even the most mundane moments of my life have meaning. Secondly, if it's true, our failures are not fatal. Anybody here ever messed up? Anybody here have a spouse that's ever messed up? Never, right, never. If it's true that Jesus has risen from the grave, it means there's hope for those of us who have sinned. And scripture tells me that all have sinned. And I've told you this if you're part of our church. In the Bible, the word all means all. Listen, if I was given one shot to make this life and to do it right, I would have failed 40 years ago. And it would have been over. But because Jesus rose, I know that he is who he says he is. And what he says he will do, he will do. And so when he died for my sins on the cross, I've accepted that forgiveness. My failures are not fatal. And finally, if it is true, then death is not final. Now let me tell you something. People hear that and the first thing they think in church, they're like, oh, awesome man, heaven. But here's what it also means. Because scripture teaches that if Jesus is who he says he is, and if the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, then guess what? Death is not final for anyone. We will all spend eternity somewhere. The choice is, are you going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus, or are you going to spend eternity separated from him in a place called hell? Because if it's true that Jesus Christ, dead, buried, three days, gets up out of the grave, stone rolled away, walks out of the tomb, walks to see his friends, introduces himself, walks with them for 40 days, ascends unto heaven on his own, then if that is true, then what he says has to be validated. And he talked more about those who did not believe in him being separated from him for eternity than he even talked about those who follow him being with him for eternity. And so if he is risen, then death is not final for anyone. And the decision you have to make is whether this preposterous, dangerous, important statement is something you can believe and trust your life to. One of the privileges that I have being a pastor for the last uh, 16 years is that oftentimes part of this position is I get to be one of the last, if not the last person, to say anything public about someone who has passed away. And I cannot tell you the number of times I've stood behind a casket where someone is there in their tomb going to a resting place. I stand behind them. Knowing that there are people that have given their life to Jesus Christ. And I'm able to boldly, prophetically proclaim that they are not done. I found an interesting thing this week. It's, I think it's interesting. You may not think it's interesting, but I'm going to tell you because I'm the one talking. <laughs> the origin of the word cemetery is the same as the origin for the word Dormitory. Okay? Now, I don't know if you've been to a dormitory lately. You're like, we don't have dormitories anymore. 
we have suites with rooms. I don't want to hear it. All right. But dormitories are temporary housing for a specific moment in time. Nobody moves in to a dormitory and says, man, I hope this is where I live the rest of my life. I mean, you may want to get away from mom and dad, but that's not the idea. All right. Now, there's some parents like if you stay here the rest of your life it's better than my basement. All right. It's a short term place to reside. While in the midst of a transition in life, dormitory and cemetery have the same root. Because if he is risen, the cemetery is a temporary housing for our physical body that will one day be reclaimed. It's the most preposterous, dangerous, important statement in the history of the world. And the question is simply, do you believe it? He is risen. Would you pray with me this morning?